This week, I've got John Voorhees here. He's the managing editor at Mac Stories, host of some fantastic Mac podcasts as well, App Stories, Mac Stories. Uh, you have a lot of stories to tell, John. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> you can finally do. come on. Everything's about stories. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been following your stuff for a long time. I'm sure um, many people in the Apple community have because you guys go deeper into a, a lot of the Apple-related software than anyone else does, which I've always appreciated in telling a lot of the untold software stories. I think so often channels, even like mine, it's like the big focus is on Apple hardware, Apple you know, right. OS announcements, the big stuff. And you guys get a lot more nitty gritty and um, all the details that we integrate with software into our daily tech lives. So I've appreciated that. Oh, thanks a lot. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the origin story of Mac stories, you know, that Federico Vitici founded in 2009. Uh, you know, he's always done deep dives into the OS when it's updated as well as apps and over the years, we've just kind of really expanded that to encompass podcasts and our Club Mac Stories program and a bunch of different things. So I've got a, a fair amount on my plate these days. As the managing editor, I kind of do a bunch of different things. I, um, I write, of course, all week long. Uh, also do a lot of the production work, whether it's you know, not only am I hosting those podcasts, but I'm actually doing the production work on those as well. And then on the business side, I kind of handle things like advertising, sponsorships and whatnot. So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of aspects of things going on. And we launched a big thing this week, a big expansion of our club, which has kept us really busy in 2021. It's always kind of challenging to add a layer on top of everything you already do like that to get something new out the door. But it, it feels pretty good to have gotten that out this week. Yeah, it looked enormous. It looked like you basically just added this huge community component. Um, just like real quick, how how does it work for anybody that's you know a fan or wants to become a fan? Sure. So we've had Club Mac Stories has been a thing since 2015, and originally it was primarily an email newsletter. We would send out weekly and monthly email newsletters, but over the course of the last six years, we've really felt the constraint of that. The fact that all this great content that we were producing was locked in someone's inbox. So what we wanted to do was pull that out of email and bring it onto the web. But that meant that because what we wanted to do wasn't really available with off-the-shelf products like Memberful and things like that, we had to kind of build it ourselves. So we built a system from the ground up and introduced two new tiers to our club program that the first one called Club Mac Stories Plus adds that web component. Everybody can enjoy the web, but Club Mac Stories Plus members also get the ability to do searching and filtering. And the filters are really cool because it allows you to create custom RSS. So you can actually tailor your, tailor your experience and what you're reading uh, from the club uh, in the filter system and then create an RSS feed and have that delivered to you automatically, kind of skipping what you're not, you're not interested. I mean, and on yeah. top of that, we're doing you know, some new content. Federico and I are writing new columns. And then if you subscribe to Club Premier, which is kind of our, our ultimate, you know, all-inclusive all pass, you add App Stories Plus, which is an expanded version of what is really kind of our flagship podcast that is, you know, uh, no ads, extended, and delivered a day early. So that's, that's, well, it's a lot of stuff, but we've been planning it. We've been working on this on and off for the last two years, really. But it was really at the end of last year that we really dug in and started building the underlying technology that was necessary to actually deliver it. 
What I really appreciate about what you guys are doing and, and even part of why I want to talk about it is because it's such a realization of the, the promise of the web, right? Like this is right. kind of what, what we all hoped the web was going to be. And I feel like it, it is less and less often because so often these days we just choose platforms like having a web presence mm-hmm. meaning means like picking parts from different pre-built boxes, which I do. I mean, I think all of us need to do for certain components. We're not going to roll our sure. own email service anymore, right? Like, or, right, uh, exactly. or, or really build a lot of the web components. Even I'm sure if you guys are building yourselves, you're still building on top of other people's work. But this ability to, um, you know, really own something is is such a, a lost part, a important part of what the open internet is to me. So I just yeah. I, I love that that kind of development still happening and at like a relatively high level, like you guys are doing something that's like pretty big and hard and you still aimed to, to do it yourself. Um, did right. what was the process like of, of kind of org, like organizing that build Did you guys actually develop it yourselves to do hire externally or we did, we have, um, Alex Guillaume is one of our writers and Alex has been with us since 2014 when he was actually a high school student writing for Mac stories. And he then went on to get a, a computer science degree and, came back to us about a year ago looking to get more involved in what we're doing because he would write for us on and off throughout the year. And so we talked to him about that and he ended up being the one, he's the driving force behind the underlying technology. He actually wrote the code. And at the beginning, we did look to move on to another platform, an existing platform. And we looked at Ghost, but Ghost didn't work exactly the way we wanted it to for our purposes. So what Alex ended up building is a custom CMS. It actually, it, what's unique about it and why we had to build it ourselves are a couple of things. One is the way we're doing our tiers for our membership just isn't supported exactly by Memberful. You can do things close to it, but not quite the way we're doing, especially where we're combining the podcast and a Discord community as well. So we kind of had to build it for that. But the other thing that's nice about it is that it's it's both delivery mechanism and content agnostic in the sense that we can throw podcasts and written products all into the same CMS, have them go out to different domains automatically. And we actually have built a custom uh, syntax that's kind of based on Markdown. It's basically an extension of Markdown that lets us write things in conditional blocks so that we can have one story that looks different to different people who are viewing the website. It, it's like, it doesn't, you know, it, it feels like an oxymoron, but it's dynamically generated static websites because everything at Mac Stories for speed and performance is static, but we have a backend that's dynamically generating those static sites based on what level of, of the club you're logged into. Yeah. There's so many examples of how this is sort of the origin of big web products too. Like, again, in the olden days, it feels like it doesn't happen as much anymore, but this is where, you know, Basecamp is an example that comes to mind. They built the tool for their own project management and realized like, hey, this, this is just a good tool. This is just a functional thing. So I love seeing this kind of like exploration and um, uh, getting out there and doing it yourself. 
Yeah, we're going to roll it out to the full website. I mean, this was kind of the first stage is to bring it to the club and to get all that infrastructure in place. But we've been really happy with the way it's performed this week because it got hit with a pretty heavy load on the on the launch day. And I hope and so. Did re- <laughs> yeah, very fortunately so. But it, it, you know, it held up really well. I mean, we I think we look back at the statistics and like the error rate of people visiting the site was like 0.03% or something. So nice. Yeah, it That's was great. It's really robust system. So we're going to bring it over to the full site. That's cool. Um, well, yeah, congrats on the launch. And I, I hope you're able to Thank keep you. up with the new crazy schedule of publishing a whole lot of content. And it, it, yeah, it's interesting, actually, that like, you know, you, you guys, uh, which, you know, Federico has been on the show as well. He was episode 66, I think. And um, you guys cover a, a lot of the same things that I do in a way. But your workflow, your work life, the way you use your computer, is just completely different from mine, I imagine. Um, because like so much for me revolves around photo and video editing. And like, that's even the reason that when you watch all these YouTube reviews, so many of them are like, well, let's see how it does with final cut and premiere, right? Like that's where we go straight to because like, well, that's what we're doing all the time. This episode is brought to you by Flipboard, one of my favorite ways to get news on any of my Apple devices, my Mac, my iPad, my iPhone. It's got great apps and web apps for all of them. And basically, it presents you with the simplest, most beautiful way to get your news. It's like big photos, big headlines, easy to browse. You flip through it in the same kind of experience a magazine would be, and you get curated content either based on your interests or you can also follow people. I'd recommend following me, for example. So I'm curating some magazines on there that are about cinematography, photography, Apple, all the things that I'm interested in. And if you follow me, then you will get the updates that I'm posting on a regular basis about the news stories that I think are the most relevant. So there's always this problem of the fire hose of new information. Flipboard is a great way to filter through it, get the basic headlines that you might want, and then also the specific details if you want to click in and actually read those articles. Flipboard has a lot of cool new features coming soon that I'm going to be talking about. But for now, it is a great community that you can curate your own content, follow other great content, and stay tuned to find out what they have coming out soon. Head to flipboard.com slash Stallman to find out more. Thanks again, Flipboard. And then I right. I also notice a bit of a, a slant towards um, in, in blogs. And for quite a while, I found this in podcasting as well, that there is more coverage of uh, writing tools because they're most... There's just a lot of writers. That was most of the Mac coverage for a long time, right? Until YouTube kind of grew up and got bigger. And for a long time, most of the biggest podcasts were from coming from writers um, that then started, you know, talking about the articles they were doing. So I find it so helpful to have like these different perspectives, like what do video editors think of this? What do, you know, writers that don't necessarily need all that horsepower think of this? And um, so in, in your sort of toolkit what are like what are your go-to apps on on a regular basis because i know i both i know they're different from mine because you do different things but also because you go so much deeper into what apps even exist like you're aware of things i have not heard of so yeah that's that's true we're always trying something new but we do have core tools that we fall back on um i have been switching things up a lot lately i have moved back to spark for email and that's primarily because of its sharing feature. I really don't feel like there's any particular email app that gets everything right. But at least with Spark, 
for instance, Federico and I can have an inline conversation about an email that comes in. You know, maybe it comes in to him and it's something that I need to deal with. He can shoot me a note inside, you know, in line with that email and explain what what he thinks needs to be done. And then I can handle it from there and, and that sort of thing. So that's been using that. We He and I have both been using Obsidian a lot lately, which is an incredibly nerdy, non-native <laughs> Mac and iOS app, which... Yeah. I think a lot of people are shocked that we're using it. But the reason we are is that it's essentially an operating system for writers because it's based on web technologies, which means it has an extensive plug-in system. We've had plugins built for us um, specifically to help with the kinds of things we do. But we also have used a lot from the community because there's a vibrant community of people making plugins. And what it allows us to do is, you know, for instance, what I'll do throughout the day is I'll have that app open and I'll have several documents open in separate panes. One of them might be a scratch pad where I'm writing down ideas and things I need to deal with later. Another one might be a story I'm writing. And a third one might be some research notes I took a couple of days before that I'm using as reference for what I'm writing. And that ability to kind of throw those things up side by side and quickly move back and forth between different um, different documents in the single text editor is really powerful, especially as we were doing this project. That became a thing that we did that I used extensively because I wrote a lot of the a lot of the copy for things like the FAQs and all the all the all the words that you see on a web page that you don't really think about day to day, but we had to make sure were consistent from page to page and place to place on the site. So it was really handy to have those things up at one time and editing them there. Um, I think one thing that I'm curious to get your reaction to is one thing that I did differently as we approached this launch, which I haven't done a lot of personally in the past, was I, I created some screencasts for what we were doing. They're pretty simple, but I did realize very quickly that using ScreenFlow and trying to open multiple projects in ScreenFlow on an M1 Mac got it pretty hot and, and bothered, <laughs> yeah. I guess, pretty quickly. And I, I started to feel, and that's, that's, you know, I guess, you know, what you were saying, which is the difference between the way we use Macs is that no matter what I do in a text editor, I'm not going to text, I'm not going to tax a Mac, even if yeah, it's ever. a low powered Mac, right? Ever. And so when I started doing these screencasts, I realized, oh, I see, I can kind of see where some of the the hard edges are of this M1 Mac. And if I'm going to, and I started thinking, well, if we're going to do more of this in the future at Mac Stories, I think I probably ought to have a Mac around here that's a little beefier once those those new machines come out. Yeah, I think uh, you picked the the best example of like why why normal people, uh, being non-video editors, would mm-hmm. still need more power is uh, I've definitely seen that with ScreenFlow. Even with a computer that can handle, say, Final Cut really easily, will still completely max out under ScreenFlow. I haven't I haven't run any computer so far that was just comfortable doing exports or uh, yeah, mostly exporting from ScreenFlow. Like while you're editing, mm-hmm. like it's a well written app. It 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 performs yeah. well. It's it's easy to work with. I mean, it's an amazing app. Actually, I should be giving it more credit than that. Um, and if anybody doesn't know, ScreenFlow. Formerly ScreenFlow Pro, which I'm glad they took the pro because it's very hard to say. Uh, they are, I mean, it's really the the like flagship screen recording app that makes Windows users jealous. Like uh, I was doing some Windows tutorials lately, 
And I was like, okay, so what's the Windows equivalent of this? Like, there must be something that's like the go-to, uh, you know, amazing screen recording where you can do animations afterwards and, you know, mo- like kind of do uh, real editing of the recording in a way that is not degrading the quality. And with the answer I seem to get was there isn't one. It's like basically you're recording a video and that's it. Um, uh, whereas screen flow really sort of captures what's happening on the computer. It's also tracking your mouse movements so that it later can either hide the mouse entirely, which I don't know why you do that, but you can also highlight where you're clicking on the screen. You can add keystrokes. So it's not just a, a, a video recording in the end, but it, it really captures the whole thing. And I also find that when I do animations later, which is a question I get every time I post a video that has screen flow in it, people can see that it looks different because the animations are so easy to make them look good. Um, it, it also seems to be like capturing it like, more, you know, more than screen resolution, almost like it's not, things don't feel like you're zooming in on a bitmap as much. Uh, whereas I know if I was just using say QuickTime, getting like a 4k recording, of the whole screen and I punched in, um, it, you can tell that you're just like zooming into a video file. So I don't know what's right, going on with right. ScreenFlow, but it's got some yeah, magic it, and the result, the final thing here, just the result is when you export, it's so slow. Like, uh, I mean, whenever I do <laughs> yeah, it for, it really it, if I do a YouTube video, it's like an hour recording and it takes uh, two hours to, to export it. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was doing things that were only like, you know, two to four minutes long. And I was just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and realizing, oh my gosh, what if this was like, you know, a really in-depth tutorial or something, but it is neat the way it, it, it has an awareness, as you said, of what's going on on the screen, which allows you to not have to worry about any of those animations while you're recording. Cause you can go back and add that stuff afterwards because it's and it's definitely something in the way that it's capturing it to its native file format because if you just bring in a video that you you made of your screen from another source you don't have that capability it has to have been recorded in screenflow for that stuff to work but super handy and useful i you know i one of the things i like about your channel is that it gives me ideas for things that we should try at mac stories because you're right i think a lot of bloggers like like us and and people who make podcasts think of things like audio editing and and text editing and those things when they're testing out hardware but it pays, I think, to really broaden your horizons and see what people are doing and how they're using tools differently in different contexts and seeing if they can be they can be translated to you know, your particular setup. Because what one of the things I've been using recently with um, an M1 iMac is a Loop Deck Live, which is a really cool little thing. It's a little like like a Stream Deck, but I actually like it a lot better. I've been uh, building that out, and you know, it was built primarily for people who are doing video editing or photo editing and that kind of thing, but, or streaming, of course, but, uh, but it, there are a lot of interesting things I've been able to do with it with the apps I use too. This episode is also brought to you by clean my Mac X because you should be able to rely on your computer. It should be fast and organized and make working on it feel like a dream, but that's not always the case. If you're a Mac user, you should be using CleanMyMacX from MacBaw, who are diligent Mac developers, many in the Mac community trust. CleanMyMacX is an ideal decluttering app for the Mac. So what does it do? 
Clean My Mac X includes 49 different tools to help you delete invisible junk from your computer. It helps to tune up your Mac to make sure it's running at its maximum speed, organize disk space by showing you large hidden folders that you might be able to clear out. Plus, you can free up tons of space so your Mac never runs into issues with storage. And it fights Mac-specific malware and adware to help protect your computer. Clean My Mac X is notarized by Apple, so you know it's been checked for security by Apple, and it really stands out on design. It makes such a different when an app is enjoyable to use, so you'll always be discovering new ways to optimize your Mac. Get Clean My Mac X today for 5% off at macpaw.app slash Stallman. That deal is only going to be available for the next two weeks, so get on it right now. That's macpaw.app slash Stallman. Thanks again to Clean My Mac X. What are some of the other <clears throat> big ones <laughs> or, or more ob- obscure ones that maybe I'm not uh, aware of too? Like, um, I mean, also just to fill in any blanks for anyone's wondering for email, yeah. I'd still use the web. I used email. And, um, Do you? All right. Wait, what was the... What was the other one you mentioned? Oh, for note taking. So yeah, when you uh, or when I started hearing about Obsidian, because yeah, everybody had been mentioning mm-hmm. it on the podcast I listened to. I'm like, oh, I should check this out. And I just looked at the homepage. And I'm like, no, this is not for me at all. <laughs> like it, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it, it's much further down the the writer uh, perspective than than I need. And uh, you know, yeah. I, I I have to write quite a bit for videos. Like I write all my like show notes ahead of time. Okay, what am I going to talk about? Sometimes I write full scripts. And sure. all of that for me has moved entirely into the default notes app. Um, once they okay. really fixed syncing on it, like when they got it, mm-hmm. it good and solid and I could rely on it. I just stopped being curious about anything else. I stopped even experimenting with other writing apps because what I need uh, is just like, I just need to, I need it to be there. Right. So it kind of fills the place right, that like right. Evernote used to be in the olden days where it's like, I can quickly search for any old notes. I can just, I can either dump things in there or I can do full documents and mm. it's the least thinking I need to do. So yeah, my uh, answer is for, for a bunch of this stuff is going to be the default. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's a great app and it's actually, you know, with the, uh, the OS updates this fall, we're adding quick note to those to, to notes, which I think is a really intriguing feature because it allows you to, tie notes to particular apps and context, you know, even do highlighting on a web page and have a note connected to it that's there if you navigate back to that page in the future. So it's it's becoming a much more robust tool in t- for a researcher. And, you know, research is at the core of an awful lot of what we do, but our, our research tends to be you know, all text-based. And we, we live in Markdown, we write in Markdown, we research in Markdown, we want everything to be portable because we're moving it between things like Obsidian to other text editors and then ultimately onto the web into either WordPress for Mac stories or our custom thing for the club. And, you know, the other, I guess, probably the other app that I live in all day long, is, a couple of, of them, I guess. One is either Reader, which is an RSS client. Uh, I also in, enjoy using ReadKit on the iPad and iPhone. And then also Todoist, which is what I'm using for task management currently. And task managers, we have a long history of switching task managers at Mac Stories. I mean, uh, the task managers are a little bit like email. I've never found one that is quite exactly right for me. And I think that that's because everybody's needs are so unique to the way they they personally work. You know, but the thing about Todoist that has really clicked lately with me is the fact that it's also web-based. So there's a web API, which means we can connect it with more things that we do, including things like Obsidian. Um, 
with RSS, RSS really is at the heart of my research pro process and the way that I keep up with apps. I, I use a service, a backend service called InnoReader, which adds another layer onto kind of basic RSS because there's a lot I'm of tools. I'm going to look these up while you talk because I haven't heard of these. <laughs> okay. InnoReader.com is yeah. a service that allows you to overlay things like uh, filters and uh, saved searches and uh, even even sorting type of uh, of things that you can do to make to make it work really well and you know it, it just is one of those things that allows me to filter through a larger number of RSS feeds because I have I don't know if I if I don't look at my RSS for a day I'll have a thousand articles at the end of the day and I you know I don't I'm not one of those completionists I, I can't be with what I with the number that I have but I have kind of a hierarchy of what I always look at and what I sometimes mm -hmm. look at. And part of that is the, the always look at are all the Apple apps and, and Apple related news. And then it, it kind of goes down from there to more general tech and that sort of thing. But uh, Reader is an app that I've used for a very long time. There's so many good RSS clients on both the Mac and iOS, but Reader's design is just a cut above almost all the rest which is why I end up using it the most because I just like the reading experience more than anything else. Plus it's on all the platforms, all of Apple's platforms. ReadKit is, is kind of a close second. It's a little, the development of it is a little behind on the Mac right now, which is why I don't use it more than I do. But I really like the integration with the iPad, especially the swipe gestures and the ability to, it, it's using the modern three column design that you, we've had for, you know, I guess a little over a year now on the iPad. And that allows you to get all the, all the, you know, this, the structure, all of the folders and feeds and lists out of the way entirely if you want, and just read one article at a time and even kind of move between them without seeing anything but the stuff you're reading, which I really like when it's kind of like late in the day and I'm just trying to catch up and I just don't want a lot of clutter as I read. ReadKit is a really right. good way to, to deal with that. Nice. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's an area that I'm a bit of a hypocrite of what I said earlier of being a fan of the open web. <clears throat> uh -huh. I've basically moved towards like, for me, RSS has become Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's like, that's kind of my, my main fire hose of, of new info. Um, yeah. like in, it's true for a lot in, of in a way it's also because like I end up with a lot less, I end up with a lot, lot less links as well, which I kind of like. Um, mm. It's more like a whole bunch of headlines. Like I can get, all right, here's just some basic info. And there's only, you know, one of five people is actually posting something that I then go and follow up and read a whole article about. So I can get a sense right. of the news that's going on without doing a deep dive. Um, also, Flipboard, I've been using more lately okay. for that same kind of thing that it's like sure. you could just flip through and see headlines, but you can also go a little deeper. It's very you know, similar structurally to the RSS stuff. I, I kind of just, I, I didn't intentionally walk away from RSS. I just guess I stopped using it. I think because the amount, it was just like the volume. If I follow a few sources that I, I like, most of them still only have, you know, one in 10 articles are the thing that I'm interested in. So it was just like, it was just too much in total. So I, I, I found I almost needed more filters to have less coming into the, into my new system. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I kind of supplement my RSS with Twitter because Twitter is a good indicator of what the hottest topics are right now. And, you mm -hmm. know, RSS is more 
throughout the day, I'll, I'll turn to it and just kind of catch up. But uh, RSS, I, I like it because it's always there and I don't miss it if I'm tuned out of Twitter for a while. So yeah. that's kind of how I, how, I, how I, you know, use the two together. And, you know, I think you're right about the, I think getting too much information is always the problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, there are a lot of big websites that have, you know, just dozens and dozens of stories coming out every day. And that's one reason I use InnoReader because... I can use that service to pull out keywords out of like headlines, for instance, of topics I know I'm just not interested in and kind of filter that out and, you know, turn the, the fire hose down a little bit that way. Um, it's also why we created this custom RSS system for Club Mac Stories, because we know that not every, as much as we'd like to think that everybody loves every single thing we've ever written, we know that some things just people aren't interested in. So we're trying to give people the tools to dial that into what interests them right. the most. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, let's also talk a little bit about the state of the Mac currently. Like sure. we're, we're at this interesting in-between point where um, it's in a way it's, it's almost hard to talk about. Like all the commentary that happens right now about, yeah. uh, especially the Mac, is going to be a little like this in, this in-between phase. And it's like we're guessing at where we're going to end up. We're, we're still trying to kind of find our way into the new world of right. M1, M1X, M2, whatever we end up getting next. Um, but it's also just the most interesting time for the Mac in in how long? I mean, really, since oh, OS X, time, really. I think, right? Like, or, yeah, or I guess, yeah. The, I mean, it's been a long time since there's been this much action, and I've I've said it before, but I feel like we're really about to hit this point where a lot there's a there'll be a lot of people that will have a hard time justifying any non Mac computer, unless you're really looking for like an extreme budget, like really like just the the cheapest machine you can find. There'll always be cheaper ones out there, but people looking in the mid range, I think it's going to be really hard, hard to look elsewhere because there's just so much, um, you get so much value out of, uh, a well-priced mid range max. They are so performant. The reviews are going to be continue to roll out being solid because everybody using them is you know, kind of loving them so far. And yeah, I think we're, we're really heading into like the, but I really hope ends up being the healthiest Mac era in, in a long time. Now, my, my only concern about it is that it could be a bit of a victim of its own success. Uh, you know, sometimes we've seen this a little with the iPhone sometimes that there can be some sort of like stagnation or, or, or laziness when things are just going well. And, um, right. uh, you know, I, I, I want, I want Apple to keep its foot down on the, on the gas pedal and, uh, keep, keep these great features rolling out of the next, 10 years. Um, but yeah, where are you right now with an M1? Are you, are you on an M1 regularly or? I am. I'm uh, exclusively on the M1 really, except for once in a great while, I will fall back to an Intel Mac. So right now I, I, I've, so far I've tried the M1 mini, the M1 MacBook air and the M1 iMac. And the the mini and the iMac were review units. I've still got the uh, the iMac on my desk, and I you know they're gonna have to pry it out of my hands. I love this <laughs> between the between the performance of the M1 and the display. It's just unbelievably uh, impressive, and the Air I use a lot too. That's what I'm recording on today, and 
I, you know, what I, I think I was blown away most about was not so much the mini, because when I use the mini, it, it, it looks just like another, uh, another, you know, Intel Mac mini. And even the air obviously looks almost identical to the one that came before it. But with the air, I was so struck and I still am by the fact that it makes no sound whatsoever. I mean, there's no fan in it. And that is something that even though it wasn't it, you know, my, the, the laptops I've used in the past from Apple, they, they're not ones that have always been super quiet. You know, the MacBook Pro has at times been, depending on what you're doing, can get really loud. And this, I just never had had the experience of using a laptop of any kind that made no sound whatsoever. And so I've, I've really been impressed with that. Now, as we talked about a little bit before with when we were talking about, um, you know, making screencasts, I, I am aware now, I think more than I was when I first started using these machines, that there are some, there's some upper limits that are not super hard to hit, depending on what kind of work you're yeah. doing on it. Fans it, do right, exist it, for a reason, even if we've got these great new, uh, super cool processors, sometimes yeah. they still get hot. Right, right. And I have been able to get the fans to spin up on the iMac doing some things mm-hmm. with audio and, and video. And you know, I, I'm really curious to see where we go because we really do. I, I hope Apple keeps the, its foot on the pedal for the pro market and that the higher end gets the same attention that this lower end has. I think it's it's uh, a good sign that we got a completely redesigned iMac, even though it is an M1 entry level iMac. Uh, it shows that, you know, we're I think we're hitting the middle strides of this transition where they're not, Apple's not just putting an M1 chip in an existing computer like the Mini or the MacBook Air. It's starting to redesign these computers around its chipset. And I think that that's going to be particularly important at the high end. So I'm hoping to see that. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time for the Mac. I'm very excited about it personally. I think it's, it, there's a lot of opportunity here to take it in new directions. I think that you know because the Mac's been around so long, it's the original platform after all, you get a lot of angst from people about where software design's going, where hardware's going. But I, I do feel like Apple is trying to kind of honor that history and that past and bring forward what makes the Mac the Mac, as well as moving it into the future because... You know, let's face it, the Mac was kind of stagnant going into this transition. I mean, it I you know, I still loved using the Mac, but it wasn't going very far in terms of new software. People sometimes ask us, you know, why don't you write more about Mac apps? And the answer is usually because there aren't as many and there aren't as many they don't come innovative yeah. right? There aren't as many new innovative things happening. Now that's starting to change. I mean, I think Catalyst and uh, Swift UI and all these new technologies are starting to bring in fresh blood and new apps. But then you also have the tension of more and more bigger companies are starting to use things like Electron so that they can offer their apps on multiple platforms, including Windows and Linux. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes up and, and shakes out in terms of you know native Mac apps, Electron apps, Catalyst versus AppKit versus SwiftUI. There's so many options now. I think it's a little bit of a confusing time to be building things on the Mac, but I, I expect it'll shake out over the next few years. Yeah, well, let's also talk, talk about the um, like where are we with pro apps right now as well, because mm-hmm. well, you know, that's, that's what affects me the most. And um, I, sure. we're also hitting an interesting point with um, the, the native app. So uh, 
thinking for myself about Final Cut, which is what I primarily edit in and I absolutely mm-hmm. love. We're also getting to this point where um, a few years ago, the conversation was all about Final Cut versus Premiere. Um, I did a video about that that went very in-depth. And now, even though... So Premiere's been gaining a lot of market share and a lot of this, I'm kind of... I'm kind of guessing based on Google trends, that's the only place I can find comparisons of like, how much are people using different video editors and people are searching for premiere more and more or premiere tutorials over final cut. Um, all, all of them have grown. It looks like there's just been a lot of growth in video editing, which makes sense. Um, based on, you know, everybody's been sitting in front of their cameras a lot more over the last few years, I think. Um, but premiere has grown faster. Meanwhile, DaVinci resolve is just, coming up like a, like a freight train from behind and really implementing the features that these other two accelerated at previously, but bringing its own super powered color grading and effects engine and audio tools that, um, all, all of those have some things available that none of the other apps can do. Like there are, there are things completely integrated into resolve that, work better or are easier to use and just you can't do um, directly in Final Cut or Premiere. And that's really amazing, especially because it's a free piece of software. So all of a sudden, we're, we're just getting to this different place than uh, I think you know we really were at just a, a couple of years ago where we could see that Resolve had this momentum, but now it's here. Like um, I didn't actually, when I did that last comparison on YouTube, comparing Final Cut and Premiere, I didn't include Resolve because it was missing a few big features and it was unstable on my machine. And now I think there's no way you can leave it out of the conversation. I think Premiere is really well, or sorry, I think Resolve is really well positioned to become the next default of like, this is what kids learn on because it's free. You don't have to pirate it. You don't have to pay for it. Um, And people are just going to know how to use it and it's going to be absolutely massive. So what I really want to see Apple do is, uh, you know, implement some of those key features into Final Cut, which especially means uh, better audio mastering, uh, things like some version, some, you know, app, Apple feeling version of uh, audio buses where you're able to have specific channels with specific effects on them without having to render them out. And, uh, and it's not clean in in Final Cut, which is because they tried to, I mean, this is a classic Apple story. They simplified it to the point that our workflows have to become a bit more complicated to accommodate that simplicity. So they've got to push it further in terms of the audio mastering. And then the other big one is is continuing down the path of better uh, color tools, which uh, they, they made huge steps forward. But it's just, there's still too big of a gap of how much more Resolve can do right now. And we need to, we just need to have all of that inside of Final Cut. A great example is handling log footage. I think two or three years ago, it was like, oh, professionals use log. Some, uh, you know, hobbyists do. But now it's like, uh, just everybody's shooting log all the time. And we need a really app, simple Apple approved way of trans or uh, converting all of your log footage to rec 709 having adding all that contrast back so i don't know these are just some specific examples of like what we we need to see happen for final cut to continue to be competitive against amazing free software right now i think you see that trend in a lot of different areas too and i think one of the things we've seen from apple is they did recommit to the pro market it seems when when things Mm -hmm. went so badly with the mac pro 
and we got the you know we got the pro display xdr xdr and those are are great starts but it feels like maybe the the software side hasn't really caught up in the same way that the hardware is starting to catch up and i think you know that that race between software and hardware and pushing both forward in a way where one can take advantage of the other is super important in the pro market. And, and I think you're right. Apple has, is not at the cutting edge of that right now. And you're seeing, for instance, designers moving to things like Figma, which is, which is online. And it, a lot of it can be used at a really reasonable price. So it's, it's one of those things where Apple has to kind of, I think, decide whether it's in the pro market or out of the pro market and leaving it to someone else. And I, I feel like they've, they've decided that after doubting themselves maybe for a few years there, that they are, in fact, coming back to the pro market. But the, you know, the pieces are not all in place yet. Yeah, I still wonder. I really want to know. I want, I want to talk to the people in charge of this. Like, is there serious regret about abandoning Aperture? at this point because oh, right. it just it Absolutely. feels like such a clear missing piece of the puzzle now and i think mm-hmm. when they walked away from it, it was a specific time for apple it was like we don't have the developer resources to to focus on this we can't give this the attention right. it needs we have to focus on the iphone at the time you know this would have been i don't remember what year this was maybe you know eight years ago or something and right. now they clearly want to refocus and capture that pro market and be the pro computer but they're missing big parts of the story without having a, a first party professional level photography app. Um, so I don't, I don't see them just like bringing it back out of nowhere, but uh, I, I do think it, it, it's like a glaring hole. There is a, there's an aperture shaped hole in the, in the <laughs> Apple photo ecosystem. And I don't know. Yeah, and, and I also but... feel like they're just, it's not completely being picked up. It's definitely not being picked up by Adobe uh, for professionals Adobe has had tremendous growth. I mean, it's incredible if you look at their uh, profits. Like Adobe's doing great financially, mm-hmm. but for a professional, it, it does seem like they're dropping the ball in all sorts of little ways that there's just like, wh- why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? And actually, again, some of those tools that I have become really obvious how much they're missing are because of DaVinci, because you start getting used to... Um, yeah, and, and so specifically, I almost want to do a video about this, but maybe I'll just like rant for 60 seconds here. Some specific things about Photoshop that really bother me is like, okay, there's a hue saturation sliders that have been there forever. And the way those work is that if you select, let's say the blue channel and you bring the saturation all the way up, you'll very quickly clip that whole channel. And at 75%, it's unusable. Most of the, those hue saturation sliders aren't functional because they are using an algorithm that will extend the the color channels beyond their range. Now, in the uh, in Resolve or also in the uh, RAW editors, um, like if you are even if you're editing a JPEG in Photoshop and you open up Camera Raw, you're able to grab the blue slider and you can crank the saturation all the way to the end. It looks oversaturated, but it doesn't clip. And it's just a different interpretation of the colors. Both of those sliders are, are named the same thing. They're just, they have a different curve to them, right? They're like, okay, as we raise mm-hmm. that saturation, we're not going to let it blow out that channel until the data's all gone. Right, Photoshop right. Still let, is happy to destroy your image because it's using <laughs> the same algorithms they were in the 90s. And there's a whole yeah. bunch of different tools that are just like that or tools that are 
completely missing. Uh, another example is saturation versus saturation, which is like a, it's a kind of curve in resolve where you can say, mm-hmm. okay, most oversaturated part of the image, just bring that down a little. And I use that all the time. I can't mm-hmm. do that in Photoshop. There is no tool yeah. like that. And these things become basic once you're using them all the time in free software like resolve and seeing Adobe not adapt means that I think there's room for somebody to come up from behind in the same way resolve did. We're going to see someone like luminar or Pixelmator or, you know, I don't know who, who it's going to be. Someone will be like, look, we are Photoshop now. Like we can, we can do right. absolutely everything. And none of them are quite there yet, but it, it really could happen if Adobe's not careful. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the aperture thing is a really good point because I feel like that the lack of that app for a lot of people is probably why they first look at something like Photoshop or maybe it's DaVinci Resolve now. And that takes people out of that pro Apple ecosystem, which isn't good for for Apple. I mean, personally, I for for video, uh, not video editing, uh, photo editing, I use primarily, at least for Mac stories, I use Pixelmator Pro because, you know, most of the time I'm just putting together screenshots, that kind of thing. Super easy stuff, just a couple of layers and, you know, maybe a little cropping or, or whatever it happens to be. But that app has really come a long way in a short amount of time. I think for, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a pro level app because I think it's missing things that a lot of pros would want to have. But for, I think, you know, 80, 90% of users, it's really fantastic. Well, if we look at the trajectory of what Photoshop was doing when it became the standard, it was missing mm-hmm. a lot of tools too. When I got started with it, there was a lot of stuff that we take for granted now didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But young people start on it and that becomes their default. And right. five, 10 years down the road, it becomes embedded and people know how to use it. So, I, that, that, that really could happen, which is actually probably a pretty good thing that we'd end up with a more diverse marketplace of competing right. creative apps instead of it just being completely dominated by Adobe, which it has been for yeah. however many years now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah, they do have, and, then, and they have the advantage of lock-in too, I think with the subscriptions mm-hmm. that people, once they kind of, once there's one or two apps that they really rely on in the creative cloud yeah. suite, then it just, it just makes more sense to subscribe and kind of maybe expand out from there. Yeah. As much as I complain about Adobe, I'm never close to canceling my subscription. But <laughs> I, I th- I've, I've often thought about doing an experiment of like, okay, one month without Adobe, what, what is it like just using all the other stuff out there? Right. And, um, I'm getting closer yeah. to being able to do it. I mean, I've moved away from Lightroom into Capture One, so that was kind of a big okay. step away. But yeah. uh, and and obviously that I use Final Cut. Um, but you know, there's there's still also things. Uh, uh, I guess one more thing I'd, I'd throw in that Final Cut could do is it needs to get a little closer to being competitive with like effects stuff like uh, sure. After Effects. Um, they have motion that nobody knows exists really. Like I, I think normal people aren't even aware that there is a it's not, I was about to call it an After Effects equivalent, but like a competitor for effects stuff yeah. um, on the Mac. Uh, and, and actually, I don't even, I, don't, I still haven't bought Motion, to be honest. I, whenever I'm doing special effects, I use Motion VFX, which they offer mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different plugins that are just super easy to have animated titles and right. uh, like 3D tracking. And they, they actually fill in a lot of those blanks that are just built into Premiere. Um, but then if you, you know, buy them from a third party, uh, you can have the motion VFX version that can do a good job, but it, it, you know, it's, it's like, 
it's still kind of weird that it's broken apart on uh, right. the Apple side of things um, so that people have to know about this. They have to track it down. So, Right. Yeah, I, I end, I'm still – I uh, subscribe to Creative Cloud mainly. And I, it's, I'm right on, the, mm-hmm. right on the edge of somebody who needs it and doesn't need it. I mean I use it for <laughs> – I use Audition for its loudness matching when I'm doing a production work. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's the best as far as I've found mm-hmm. for that. So I use that. And I use Photoshop and InDesign a little bit here and there. But but uh, I, I think if I weren't getting the teacher's rate, because my, my wife is a teacher, I probably wouldn't be subscribed. Right. What do you edit your podcasts in? So I do. I use Logic. Um, it's mm-hmm. It's what I learned on. There are other ways to do it now, but I've gotten pretty good at it. And I, so I, my kind of my workflow there is after I record something, I run the, run the files through audition to loudness match. And then I usually use isotope RX. I'm still on RX six, which is just, you know, runs a bunch of passes on the audio to clean up things like ums and ahs and, you know, I don't know, plosives and that sort of thing. I'll run it through that usually on a really light touch on that, and then I just pull it into Logic and start editing there. And it, the, the workflow still... changed a little. I was going to say the workflow's changed a little yeah. recently since we're doing all this like other new stuff. But but yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Still, such a it's so weird that we're in a place that for audio, which is relatively simple, we do need because yeah. I use kind of a similar step, uh, setup. We run it through three different apps before it comes out. Whereas, like for video, I just mm-hmm. use one app. But for audio, yeah, I do. Right. I do the same thing. Except we start to do our cutting in Final Cut because we're also doing a video version of the podcast a lot of the time. Sure. So we just do one pass of the edit all in Final Cut, and it's it's just it's easy. And before that, I was using Audition for the edit as well. And by the way, if anybody's not watching the video version, if you're just listening, you're missing out on the fact that we are both wearing the exact same eyeglasses, which was not planned. But good incentive, <laughs> good incentive to check it out on YouTube, uh, just to, yeah. to, to see what you're missing here. But, yeah. um, yeah, that's been the shift for me. And I, I would also encourage anybody that hasn't looked at audition f- for editing. I think a lot of people, uh, start think that logic is kind of the be all and end all for podcast editing. So many big podcasters edited in it. Um, cause it's great. I mean, logic's amazing. I just say right. that if you, if you don't currently have logic, but you do have creative cloud, uh, audition is amazing. You won't be missing out on anything. Uh, in my, I mean, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but what yeah. I, I think, I don't think there's any podcast relevant tools in logic that are missing no. from audition. No. No, it, it's that yeah, all it, the extra stuff is music there. based. Yeah. Exactly. It's all there. And and Logic is actually way more tool than you need for podcasts because, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. I was actually setting, I mentioned the, the Loop Deck Live I was setting up and it has some built-in plugins for Logic. And I took a look at them and I was like, well, I'm not going to use any of these because it's all for, for music creation. And it was way more than I needed. So I just, you know, created a few things that I use when I'm navigating around, navigating around the app. Uh, and that's totally fine. The thing that's hard about Logic, I think, is that it's very easy if you aren't doing music production to screw up your settings and have a hard time finding your way back to what you need for podcasting. Because it's, I don't know, maybe 5 or 10% of the features that are in Logic. Now, I haven't used 
audition extensively, but the tools are all there. It's really what you know and what you're comfortable with. And for me, I came from uh, being good friends with the guys at, at Relay who helped me along in learning how to do all this editing on audio. And so it, you know, those guys know Logic. And so it made sense for me to, to do Logic too and, and kind of have them to lean on when I needed a little advice. Well, and if anybody wants to hear John's editing expertise, go over to App Stories podcast or uh, Mac yep. Stories Unwind, and you can listen to how good he is at editing podcasts because uh, I love your shows over there. And uh, John Voorhees on Twitter. Um, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Tyler. It's been a, been a pleasure. 